Hi, my name is Margaret Steele. I'm a lecturer at University College Cork and I'm interested in the philosophy of health, fat, food and fitness. So thank you for tuning in to my presentation today. It's entitled Weight-Based Shame as an Affective Determinant of Health. Now, my technical skills and resources don't quite stretch to showing you uh, both my face and my presentation. So here's a picture of me giving another presentation about weight stigma, just to give you an idea of what you're missing. Uh, so this presentation is a response to Barry Lyons and Luna Dolezal's 2017 article, Health-Related Shame, an Affective Determinant of Health. So in both medical and public health research, there's increasing attention being paid to the factors that affect the health of an individual but are not under individual control. So Lyons and Dolezal propose the idea of an affective determinant of health and they take shame as their key example. So in this presentation, I take up their invitation to further consider shame as a possible determinant of health by focusing on the case of weight stigma. And for this purpose, I consider phenomenology to be really valuable because, of course, shame as an affect has an essential subjective component to it. So for that reason, I focus on the first person lived experiences of fat people and drawing both on my own experience as a fat person and others' descriptions of their experience. And I suppose I want to focus particularly on one strand or type of lived experience, namely bodily motility. And the questions that I want to explore are, one, does shame affect the motility of fat people? And two, does this affect their health? And I use the word fat here as a value neutral term. I understand it's not universally agreed to be value neutral, but I, I consider it to be, I suppose, the least problematic term that's available. So my overall approach to this topic is in the phenomenological tradition then. So it's my approach is grounded in Husserlian phenomenology in particular, and especially Husserl's descriptions of embodiment in ideas too. So for the purposes of this presentation, I don't think I need to go into a ton of detail on that, but I just would say that the account I'm proposing starts from the idea that in ordinary everyday experience, both our own body and the bodies of others are given as organs of the will. So my idea would be, my background assumption would be that to have a body is to experience the world as negotiable, as manipulable to a greater or lesser extent, that at least that is one mode in which our bodies are given to us, that that kind of experience of embodiment that can be summed up in the phrase, I can. But there are many ways, obviously, in which this experience of I can or this I can structure of experience can be conditioned, can be limited, can even be thwarted. And I want to argue that body shame can have such an effect, can be limiting, thwarting as well as just conditioning. And that in the case of at least some fat people, this effect is harmful to health. So I'm not saying that this effect happens to all fat people, the body shame, either that all fat people have serious amounts of body shame 
or that it affects their motility and therefore their health. My claim is only that this is a possible way in which some fat people might be affected. So the idea here is that weight-based body shame can be harmful to health when specifically, though not exclusively, when it has the ironic effect of making a person less likely to want to undertake any kind of vigorous movement. So reluctance to move affects one's ability to undertake movement. So weight-based shame could affect health by limiting the person's physical capabilities. And my argument for this draws on Iris Marion Young's phenomenology of feminine motility. So Young, as you will know, claimed that women in sexist society are physically handicapped. And my claim is that fat people in fat phobic society are similarly handicapped. And I want to suggest that shame is central to this quote unquote handicapping and that the result is a net negative effect on health. So let's just say a little bit about what shame is. So reviewing the literature on shame, Dallas Ellen Lyons note that shame is a self-conscious emotion in that the object of shame is oneself. And this makes sense, right? We would say one is ashamed of oneself. And furthermore, shame is linked to one's core identity. So shame, you could say, goes deep. Now, there is a lot of evidence that fat people are especially prone to shame. And if you consider one recent example, um, a German study, Westerman et al., they found that when faced with social exclusion, I'm quoting, when faced with social exclusion, individuals with obesity do not respond with more intensive negative emotions in general compared to controls, but with a specific increase in shame. So in short, when experimenters created the experience or recreated the experience of being excluded by peers, all the subjects who felt excluded felt more sadness and more anxiety, for example, but it was the fat participants who were more likely to feel more shame. So they felt in some sense that, you know, it was something wrong with them. There was a flaw in their core identity was how they experienced the, the experience of being excluded. And I mean, that's kind of unsurprising given that fatness is widely understood as a matter of individual responsibility in our society. And that to be fat is not only an aesthetic, but a moral failing. So you can see Gillian Michaels there, one of the trainers on the reality TV show, The Biggest Loser. And I kind of imagine she's yelling at this contestant and it seems to me as though she's saying, you should be ashamed of yourself. And the participant is saying, I am. So fat people, in a sense, they're caught on the horns of a dilemma with respect to physical activity, or at least, you know, some, again, not saying this, that all fat people are subject to this experience or that all fat people feel this way all the time. But there is at least a significant possibility that they do feel this way. So it's widely believed that fat people can and should lose weight. So they just need to eat less and move more. But in a cruel irony, when fat people do engage in physical activity, they're often exposed to stigma and they can end up feeling more shame. And this is really movingly illustrated in the comic, The Weight of Expectation. And there's an image from that comic here on the slide. 
And this comic is based on research into the lived experience of weight stigma that was conducted by Ollie Williams and Ellen Annandale. And the research, which was published in a paper in 2018, followed a weight loss group with researchers attending sessions and interviewing participants in depth in order to learn about their lived experiences. And then Ollie Williams worked with the illustrator and comic author Jade Sarson to create a visual and narrative account of what their research had revealed. And the research, as Williams and Annandale put it, shows how weight stigma and the resulting body shame gets under the skin. So they want to emphasize the embodied, felt, lived aspect of these experiences. So in the image from the comic here, you see a fat woman, Susie, is the name of the character, and she's dressed to go swimming. Um, and we later learn that Susie's a very strong swimmer and that she enjoys being in the water. But here, when we see her on her way from the dressing room to the pool, she looks distressed and she's carrying her arms um, almost as if she's trying to hide as much of her body as possible. And she feels marked. If you look at what's on her swimsuit there, she feels marked as a lazy bitch, even though she's on her way to go for a swim, having completed a strenuous exercise class. So the point here, I guess, that I would emphasize is for a fat person like Susie, this experience of stigma, it's not cognitive or it's not primarily or exclusively cognitive. And this is a point that Williams and Annandale bring out really well, too. Um, it's not just that Susie believes that others will see her as a lazy bitch. It's that in her own body, she feels and quote unquote knows that it's true on some level. So in phenomenological terms, we could say that she constitutes herself as a lazy bitch and she feels ashamed on that basis, perhaps even regardless of, you know, what might be her rational or cognitive beliefs about the situation. So my question then is how might this shame affect Susie's motility and then her health? And in order to explain how I think that might work, I want to talk about a very different body, that of Mariah Carey. So the image here is of Mariah Carey throwing a ceremonial first pitch at a baseball game in Tokyo in 2011. Now, if you look at this image, it seems pretty clear to me that Carrie is posing. Um, this is actually a still from a video, but it doesn't look like an action shot, right? It looks like a pose. Um, I would say, it seems to me, that throwing is not her main concern, if it's a concern at all. Her stance is, is pure Instagram influencer. And, you know... The pitch that she threw was notoriously terrible. It was, you know, peak throwing like a girl, as per the stereotype. Um, and I guess for anyone who has read their Iris Marion Young and who finds that account convincing, you probably wouldn't be surprised by this, right? Um, so in Throwing Like a Girl, Young describes what she calls the modalities of feminine comportment. And she shows how girls and women are conditioned to move less freely and less confidently than boys and men. And she takes throwing as a quintessential example, which is why I like this, uh, this example of Mariah Carey. Um, so I want to suggest that in many contemporary societies, 
fat people are conditioned in ways that are comparable, though by no means exactly the same, as those in which feminine motility is conditioned in a patriarchal society. So Jung writes, at the root of those modalities, those modalities of feminine comportment, that is, is the fact that woman lives her body as object as well as subject. And the source of this is that in patriarchal society, sorry, that patriarchal society defines woman as object, as a mere body, and that in sexist society, women are in fact frequently regarded by others as objects and mere bodies. So I would contend that just as patriarchal society defines woman as object, fat phobic society defines fat people as objects and indeed as mere bodies. And like women in a sexist society, fat people in fat phobic society are effectively never allowed to forget that whatever they do, whatever they say, they're always being judged on how they look. And just as an illustration of how fat people are defined as objects, consider this image search. So this is a search, a Google image search for the term headless fatties. And Charlotte Cooper, Dr. Charlotte Cooper coined this term headless fatties to refer to this widespread phenomenon whereby fat people are constantly depicted without heads or without faces. So from the back or from the neck down. And it's just a manifestation of how fat people, regardless of gender, are constantly treated as, in Jung's terms, objects and mere bodies. And this, of course, I would say, conditions them, us, to live their bodies as objects. And as Jung explains, this has a huge impact. So although Susie from The Weight of Expectation comic and Mariah Carey from The Real World, more or less, are objectified in very different ways, one as beautiful, if silly, the other as disgusting and a moral failure. Both of them are conditioned to live their bodies as object. And this has an impact on their motility, both on how they do in fact move and on how they are able to move. So Jung writes that our attention is often divided. And of course, she's speaking here of women. Women's attention is often divided between the aim to be realized in motion and the body that must accomplish it, while at the same time saving itself from harm. We often experience our bodies as a fragile encumbrance rather than the medium for the enactment of our aims. We feel as though we must have our attention directed upon our bodies to make sure they are doing what we wish them to do rather than paying attention to what we want to do through our bodies. Now, in the case of fat people in a fat phobic society, the divided attention phenomenon, I would say, is very much present, but slightly different. So the primary concern may not be saving oneself from physical harm, but from the harm of shame, from embarrassment. And rather than experiencing our bodies as fragile encumbrances, we might experience them as dead weight, as embarrassing us, as something that we need to control and to try and keep as hidden as possible so that we don't expose ourselves to shame. But in either case, the upshot is that we do not focus or we're not able to fully give our attention to what we want to do, as Jung puts it, through our bodies. So my line of reasoning here is that 
when we're forced to think of ourselves as objects or, you know, as, as mere bodies, our movement is affected and in many cases limited. And fat people are conditioned to think of themselves not just as objects, but as disgusting objects. And rather than resenting others for this disgust, fat people often tend to internalize it as shame. Just like when they have the experience of being rejected by peers in a group, they feel it shame rather than just sadness or disappointment or whatever. Um, so there's a tendency to kind of have the emotions of self-blame. So this means that for fat people, being or feeling objectified is frequently an experience of shame specifically. So there are other negative um, associations with objectification, say, for women, even when the objectification is in a supposedly positive mode, like, oh, you're being objectified because somebody thinks you're sexy or something like that. Um, there's that's can still be a very, very negative experience, but it's a different kind of negative experience to being objectified as not only an aesthetic, but a moral failure. So one of the major ways that shame can affect health is through shame avoiding behaviors. So people are less likely to do things if they think that doing them is going to involve feeling ashamed. And so, you know, there's evidence that fat kids try to avoid gym class, PE class, right? Um, and if we think about the, the subjective side of this, the, the lived experience, I think that the full impact has to be understood in a long-term way. So to greater and lesser extents, physical skills work on a use it or lose it basis, right? Um, the less you do, the less you can do. And this is particularly true of skills that require agility, things like um, climbing or crawling or things that involve flexibility and strength like squatting. So an activity like, like climbing or crawling is unlikely to be appealing in a situation where you're trying to avoid being noticed as an object of disgust. So a fat person like Susie probably isn't going to want to risk frankly, the unflattering angles from which she might be seen and judged by other people if she tries something like, say, you know, quadrupedal movement, crawling on the floor or climbing or something like that. Um, and this is this is why she's afraid to get into the pool, even though, as we know, she's a good swimmer, right? And I suspect, though, again, you know, further work would need to be done on this, of course, but I suspect that this could be particularly harmful in the case of kids because kids who are reluctant to engage in those kinds of activities, they might never even develop the motor skills that are involved in stuff like climbing or throwing um, in a way that might not be reparable later in life. So it's not just that shame causes fat people to move less, but that over time, this in turn causes them to be less able to move. So when we're less able to move, I would say, and this is, you know, very much drawing on my own experience too, I guess, that our experience of the world becomes different. It affects how we perceive the world. The world seems hostile. The world seems more like a series of barriers that we may not be able to overcome. And more and more, the experience of our own bodies, our sense of our bodies as organs of the will, as capable of functioning in the world, is more and more 
in a negative mode. So I can is more and more replaced by I cannot. And, you know, I think of Susie here. Now, we know Susie is actually a good swimmer, but, you know, her experience of being ashamed is common to people regardless of whether they swim well or not. And you can imagine people finding all kinds of difficulties in going to the pool. I can't go to the pool because I'm going to feel ashamed. I can't go to the pool because I can't get down the steps into the pool and I'm too ashamed to ask for help. Or I can't go to the pool because I'm ashamed that I can't swim. I can't swim. I can't. And there's a kind of a cycle here, I think. I can't. So I won't. So I can't. And it, the cycle goes on. So moving less is well known to be injurious to health in all kinds of ways. So if shame causes us to move less, and perhaps more importantly, to be less able to move, then I would say shame can indeed be described as an affective determinant of health. Um, I want to finish on a positive note because I do think there is room for hope here, actually. Uh, so in the research that led to the weight of expectation comic, Williams and Annandale found that when they were on their own, in their own group, away from the judgmental eyes of other, you know, perhaps thin people, the weight loss group participants really enjoyed exercise and the more vigorous, the better. And to the point where they would be disappointed if they had a, a fitness session in which they didn't, quote unquote, get a sweat on. And they felt that they had done something when they were sweating. And Williams and Annandale theorized that for the participants in their study, sweat functions as, a, as they put it, a carnal cue that helps people to negotiate stigma. So sweat was representative, I'm quoting here, sweat was representative of effort and its presence allowed participants to feel good about themselves. And another, and in my view, complementary to Williams and Annandale's theory here, to think about this experience might be to say that when they felt less objectified, when they were not forced to divide their attention between subject and object to the same extent, that the participants felt free to throw themselves into the activity rather than worrying about how they might look to others. So they're free to be in a subjective, goal-focused, I can attitude. And they're free to push their physical limitations, to take up the space they need, and to explore the best way to accomplish different kinds of movement. So if shame makes the world hostile or makes the world seem hostile, you know, maybe this kind of freedom can make it more welcoming. And if shame limits movement and thus harms health, perhaps one way to improve health would be to offer more opportunities for stigmatized groups to engage in movement free of shame, rather than just ordering them to move more without addressing the affective reasons why this might not be appealing. So let me just give you a quick look at the um, my references here. And again, just a quick reminder, my email address, margaret.steel at ucci.ie. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts or comments or critiques. And I hope this has been an interesting presentation. And thank you so much again for your attention.